Let me ask you a question. Um, the question is this. Answer it in your head, and we'll kind of circle back to it at the end of the message today. But why should God let you into heaven? Or why should, you, why should God accept you into his family? And I want you to sort of answer that question in your own mind. Why should God let you into heaven or accept you in any way? Uh, that, as Christians believe, if there is a heaven and a hell, if that's a reality, then how you answer that question is very important. How do I know if God would accept me, if he would find me right or righteous? Um, and as you answer that, it's often where we start with that question, but you realize as you answer it that if we think about heaven as a place of God's presence, as a place of God's kingdom operating perfectly, that the reality of God's presence and his kingdom is not just a future when I die thing or at the end of all time thing, but it's a reality that can be experienced every day of my life. The very presence of the God of the universe, his kingdom at work in the world around us, and it, it, it can bring about within us a beautiful joy of knowing and experiencing God every day. So, but, but why, why would you be led into that? And if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ or you're, you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, that's a very important question. But it's also, for those of you who are Christians who might think, well, that's kind of a simple question, that's sort of a most basic question, it's an important question for us too because we, in our everyday, may not be experiencing the joy that God intends for all of his people. And that's a problem. There's a lot of joyless Christians in the world. And joyless Christians are problematic. Uh, and there's, there's too many of us who don't exhibit that joy. And how, but, but the thing is, how we answer the why does God accept you question will either help you to increase and grow in the joy in your life, or it can rob your joy right away. And it's sort of a, a, a diagnostic question. Now, there's also a lot of joy-filled Christians. And if you've, you may know some of these folks in your everyday, there's a number of you in this room, who when I see you and when we interact, you just know that the joy of the Lord is with them and is, it's, it's in working in their life and flowing from them to the world around them. And it's uh, when you see it and when you experience it for yourself, you realize how wonderful God's joy is. And joy is a major theme of this letter we've been studying. We're calling this whole sermon series Bound for Joy, that this is um, Paul in prison writing to a church in Philippi, and he's just encouraging them to, um, to continue to live out their faith and grow in God's joy. And we've been focusing on this, but we haven't really defined the word joy. So when I say joy, what are we really talking about? A friend of mine sent me a, a, a teaching from Pastor John Piper, and Piper defines joy uh, like this. He says, Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. And uh, he, he goes on to expound each of those phrases. It's, it's a, a little 10-minute teaching. If you Google John Piper... How do you define joy or something like that? It'll come right up. And uh, it's, it's 10 minutes well spent. But joy really is, it's a feeling. It's, it's this uh, supernatural excitement that's greater than anything this world has to offer. And it's something that we experience when we realize who God is and what he is doing in the world around us. And it's, it, it's, it's the work of God in us and it's overflowing 
from us. And here, the big idea of this whole passage is to have joy, to rejoice. Look at verse 1. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. This is the big idea that our rejoicing is in the Lord Jesus. He's the source of the joy. Therefore, joy is not just something deep down inside me that I just need to uncover. I just need to get rid of the bad thoughts and get rid of it. And there's joy in there that I can find. It's not there. The joy actually is given to us from God. Our joy is in him and what he's doing. And it's, it's different than happiness. Happiness, the, the word we use for happy comes from a Latin word, fortuna. That means like fortune, the things that you want to happen are happening, so you are happy. Joy is greater than happiness because even if we don't have good fortune, even if life is not going the way we want, that joy is something that we can still experience and still uh, motivate us and something that God can still develop in and through us in good and in bad. Joy is much deeper than our circumstances. And it's something that we can pursue. So right here in verse 1, rejoice is a, it's a command. It's an encouragement. It's something that we can seek to cultivate in the life of the believer, that joy is, uh, can, can grow and, and be pursued. So I want to consider this joy. How do we not find it? Or what are the things that are going to rob us of that joy? And then how do we find it? So where is true joy not found, and then where, where is true joy found? And I want to take a look at that this morning. Let's pray as we begin. Father God, we thank you uh, for on a day where we wake up to, a, uh, to see the snow and the blanket of, of white on the world around us. We are reminded of your power, and we are reminded of your purity. And we pray now that we would know your goodness and your purity and, the, and your gentleness but also understand your power and your greatness and that we would hold all of who you are, that we would consider all of who you are as we consider your word. So we pray that your Holy Spirit would, would be very active as we look into your word, that you would just open our hearts to understand your way. This time is yours, and we pray in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we experience true joy when our identity is found in Jesus and in his righteousness. But joy is not found, we see here in this text, joy is not found in me and in my accomplishments. Take a look at verse 2. Paul says, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Watch out. It, it, three times there's a warning. In our English translation here, it, we only see the word once, but literally it's, um, watch out for those dogs. Watch out for those evildoers. Watch out for those mutilators of the flesh. Watch out. Look out. Beware. What's, what's he warning them against? And again, we only have his letter. We only have sort of one side of the conversation. But it seems that the report to him was that there were those in the, seeking to influence this church in Philippi, this young church, trying to influence them to say, to say look, Jesus is not enough. You need to have faith in Jesus, but you also need to obey all the Old Testament rituals and laws, uh, starting with circumcision. So you need to be a Christian. You need to be fully Jewish by obeying all these rituals. And what Paul is saying here is watch out. That is bad teaching. And he uses very strong language against this. He's saying uh, that, that these people are 
dog. Now, some of you, when I say dog, you think that's a, a positive image. You let a dog you know, maybe even sleep in your bed, which I think is strange, but you love dogs, and that's a good thing. In Paul's day, that was not a positive image. You would not let a dog you know, stay in your home and in your bed. Uh, they're animals that were dirty and of the street and could carry disease and could harm you or attack you. And the warning here is that this type of teaching is the type of teaching that could take the joy that you have and rob it away from you. Um, and, and he says, look, don't forget who you are. Verse 3. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, we who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. See, remember who you are. We are not people who uh, are just confident in ourselves. We, we are not people who measure ourselves by these rituals and these things. The, the early Christians really wrestled with this. Do you really need to become fully Jewish? Do you really need to follow all, you know, circumcision and all the Old Testament law? Because they believed that Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of all the Old Testament, all the sacrifice, all the rituals, all the ceremonies, were all pointing to Jesus. He didn't come to do away with them. He came to fulfill them. That Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice and the ultimate, uh, the ultimate fulfilling of all those things, and he fulfills them so that we don't have to. They've been completed in Jesus. So all the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, all the purity laws, are not things that we have to follow. Now, there's, in the Old Testament, there's a lot of moral law, a lot of uh, law that guides what it means to be human and what it means to be obedient to God. The moral law, summed up, for example, in the Ten Commandments, is still binding on God's people for all time. But these ceremonies and sacrifices are fulfilled in Jesus when he died on the cross so that we don't have to then put our faith in Jesus and also follow all these rituals and ceremonies. And, and even in the Old Testament, circumcision was just a, an outward symbol of what was supposed to be an inside reality, a reality in my heart that I am consecrated and set apart for God, that it was a reality of the heart, not just an outward thing. And here the reminder is, don't forget, we're the true circumcision. We're the ones whose hearts have been changed for Christ. We are the ones who serve, also could mean worship. We're the ones who worship God by his spirit. That we don't, it's, there's a spiritual reality within us, not just performance, but God's spirit alive in us. And when we consider the work of God's spirit in us, it's to be human means that we want to justify ourselves. We want to just do the best we can. We want to be accepted by God. And as we rely on ourselves, we will just do that by trying to do all the right things and perform so that God will somehow accept me. He said, we're the ones who are operating in the spirit, where God's spirit doesn't make us rely on ourselves. God's spirit makes us rely on him, such that we now worship him and praise him because he's the one at work in us. And just verse 3 there, just don't forget who you are, because we we're not the people who are confident in ourselves. We're confident in God. But look at verse 4. He says, if you want to be confident in yourself, just take a look at me, because I probably could be if I really wanted to. And he, Paul basically goes through a whole list of his life accomplishments, all the good religious stuff that Paul has done, and he describes it. So he's saying, look, if anybody can be self-reliant, it's me. 
look at verse 5. He was circumcised on the eighth day. So his family you know, obeyed and got all the right rituals. He did the right ceremonies. He was of the people of Israel. So he belongs to a nation of people through whom God revealed himself to the world. Not because of anything they did, but because he chose them out of all the nations of the world to show his heart, to save the world, and to show his grace. So he belongs to that nation. And he belongs to the tribe of Benjamin. This is an elite tribe. You know, the land that was given to the tribe of Benjamin included Jerusalem, the capital city. They were, they were one of the, I'd say, the top two tribes that you could belong to. And they were a faithful tribe. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Whatever it meant to be God's people, that's who he was. In regard to God's law, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. So not only did he belong to this nation and this tribe, but he belonged to a specific group of, of Jewish leaders who had special training and special education. He knew the scriptures. He knew the laws. He was, he was trained. This is a group of people. They held purity so high. They did not want to violate God's law. They made extra laws that they wouldn't violate because if I don't violate that law, then I won't have any chance of violating this law. They added laws to the law so that they could be extra pure. As for zeal, persecuting the church. So he pursued all that he was supposed to pursue and do all the right things. And for the people who weren't, he's going to go after them. So he's going to live the right life and he's going to punish people who don't, who, who seem to not be living it right. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Look, you take all the Old Testament, you take all of God's rules, I have no fault in any of this, he says. He has almost everything. Almost everything. There was one thing he was missing. And it was the most important thing. Look at verse 7. He says, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. He's now given all his credentials. Here's all my good religious activity and all my obedience, and I've written it down. It's a, here's my profits and here's my losses. Is any your personal finances? You know, here's your credits and your debit. Any profit loss from your company? You know, we list all the profits. Here's all the losses. He said, I put all this stuff, everything that I would write down to my credit. All these things that I think make me right before God, I take them all, and I move them into this column. They're losses. And now there's only one thing to my prophet. It's Jesus. All of our things that make us righteous and self-righteous in ourselves are, are a loss compared to Jesus. And at the heart of what this is, is the condition of sin. If we look at our lives and the things we do and we think, you know what? God should accept me because I'm doing certain things. We forget the fact that we are all sinners. And if we think we're better than other people, we forget the fact that we are all sinners and that we are all lost apart from what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And this is where it hits home for all of us. And this is where this, this very, you know, what are the things that make me acceptable before God and all the things that we would, why would God accept me? All those things we think of and say, apart from Jesus, are things that can really pull us away from him and from his joy. And the question is, so what are those things for you that you would consider your accomplishments that God should be accepting in? Again, circumcision, not really an issue today. 
uh, the early Christians sort of figured that out. Um, it, you know, the ceremonial and, and some of the civil laws of Israel don't apply to us in the same way. But religious righteousness, like Paul's list, we can make those lists. If you struggle with religious righteousness, you might say something like, I'm more acceptable to God because I, you know, I read my Bible all the time and I make sure to take communion and I made it to church in the snowstorm, you know, through my unplowed driveway. Um, you know, I fast during Lent. And, and again, those are wonderful things and those are good things. As soon as we start to write them in our profit list, that's where Paul just says, look, warning, warning. This letter, this is a good church. This is an obedient church in Philippi and here in Andover, but talking about Philippi mostly. Um, this is a good church, very tender letter. He's just saying, look, just watch out. Whenever we start to get a righteousness that's not from Jesus, we're starting to head in a bad direction. He said, just warning. These are not bad things. Those obedient, going to church, reading your Bible, yes. But those are not things that credit us as righteous. Those are things that actually flow from Jesus and flow from his righteousness at work in our hearts. So maybe it's religious righteousness, maybe or maybe not for you. Maybe it's moral righteousness. Uh, somebody who is struggling with moral righteousness might say, I care more about obedience to God's law, and I'm not perfect, but I'm doing way better than all those other Christians who do not care enough about obedience. And I'm a better person because of it. You know, my, my lifestyle makes me more acceptable to God. And again, we talked about this a couple weeks ago about where, where our motivation for obedience comes from God. And there's a joy in obedience. It's not about being better than someone else or somehow God must accept you because you're just so good. That's not how it works. Maybe you have mercy righteousness. Maybe you feel more right before God because of your heart for other people. It might sound like this. I care for the poor and disadvantaged the way that everyone else should, and God likes me more because I put other people first. Maybe you have what I call political righteousness. Political righteousness is a belief that God is more pleased with you because of your political leanings. And you think about your position. Just think about whatever side of the aisle you might sit on. Consider somebody on the opposite end of the spectrum from you, the political spectrum. And picture that person. Do you think you're a better person than that person is? Do you believe that your party values are more in line with Jesus' values? And do you believe that if people really loved God, they would vote, you know, the way you vote? If they really love God. You know, people who vote a certain way are clearly more acceptable to God. Or maybe you're uh, more, you hold more moderate positions politically. And maybe you feel judgmental of everyone. You might be prone to think, why can't everybody be more moderate like me? And those crazy people on either end of this uh, crazy political spectrum. That's political righteousness. Now, I get a few more of these, so we're going to keep going. We'll stop here. Um, religious righteousness, moral righteousness, mercy, political. 
Um, these are, th <laughs> we're not asking each other to raise our hands on these, but if we were, I'd be like, yeah, that's me, that's me, I do that. All right, family righteousness. Do you feel godlier because you are nailing it as a parent? You are educating your children more excellently than those parents who clearly are not doing as well as you. Your children are better behaved, and God loves you. God loves the way you have chosen to educate and nurture your children. God must be inspired by what a loving parent you are. <laughs> Our Heavenly Father, who gave his son to death that we might live, is inspired by your parenting? Just a... That's family righteousness. Uh, financial righteousness. I'm not like those materialistic Christians who can't control themselves. They are so selfish and self-absorbed. I am radically generous to the church and to other groups. I tithe. I can live off 90% of my income. Why can't you? God's face must be toward me in a special way. Financial righteousness. Uh, job righteousness. God will reward me because I work hard. I produce good things. I am successful. My work is so important to society because I educate or because I medicate or protect or beautify or steward or whatever wonderful thing you do at work. Job righteousness. Um, anyway, the list could go on. I, um, th there was a great list of those in a, a study called Gospel-Centered Life, which I, is a great study. Um, now, at this point, you might say, Pastor, aren't you attacking the wrong thing? Like, shouldn't you be attacking sin and evil and bad things? I have enough trouble with the bad stuff in my life and the sin and fighting against that. Why would I fight against all these good things, all the righteousness? Fair enough. I, and I, I, the same thing. I, I would think I got enough trouble in my life that the good things that are to my credit, why would I fight against those? The, the reason is this. All of those things, as good as, those are good things. Do excellent at parenting. Be generous with your money. Be, you know, do uh, your spiritual and religious duties to the extent that those foster your faith. But not one of those things in themselves can bring you true and lasting joy that God intends. And in fact, the more that we rely on those things, the more they can, they can rob joy from us. Joy is not found in those things. And those things will steal your joy. And I think you can see it as we think about it. Because I'll either become proud, I'll do those things well, and I'll feel really proud that I'm doing pretty good. And then I feel like, you know what? God, I did my part, and now you kind of owe me. And what you've just done in that moment, when I feel that way or when you feel that way, is we have just put the God of the universe at our debt. The God of the universe who gave me life who died that I can live, in my debt, it's just not how it works. That we cannot do enough that God somehow owes us. And we become very proud. Or we are not nailing it, and we are struggling in a lot of those areas, and we just hate ourselves, and we see how other people are living, and we feel like failure before God, and we just, it becomes self-loathing. So whether it becomes arrogance and pride or self-loathing, it's going to steal your joy away. And God hates pride. Proverbs 16, 18 says, I hate pride and arrogance. 
evil behavior and perverse speech. So God hates evil behavior and evil words, and God hates evil arrogance and pride. Whether you're struggling with bad things or you're struggling with good things, God does not like it. And alternate, so that so our joy cannot be found there. So that's where joy is not found. Where can we actually find this joy? True joy is found in Jesus. Look at verse 8. Oh, go back to verse 7, sorry. Verse 7. Whatever were, to, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, verse 8, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Compared to Jesus, our accomplishments are nothing. He says, I consider everything a loss, everything in my life. Uh, Any good thing that I had, I look at Jesus and what he accomplished in my list is is nothing. It's all just loss. And you may feel... In a, that in a negative sense, you know, that, you know, you do something good and then, you know, Jesus comes in and he's so much better than and, and, you know, everything in life kind of works that way. You work your whole life to, to master the triple axle and you can combo triple axle, triple toe loop and you, you nail it. you perfect on the landing and the next guy comes out and does a quad quad and you think, why did I train my whole life to, you know, to do this amazing thing and somebody comes in and just blows it out of the water. You know, whatever, you know, you you think you're doing really well and, um, you know, I'm teaching my kids to to compete and and do well and then somebody else's kid comes in and knocks your kid over. Are you doing all these wonderful, and and so is that what life is, that Jesus comes in and he just sort of like, hey, you want to know what it means to be human? And just makes us feel terrible. No. It's not a negative because... Here, I consider all those other things garbage that I might gain Christ. That it's not just what he takes away from us, but what we gain. It's not that he comes just to wipe our thing out, but to give us what he did. So when we move, here's all my list of accomplishments. Here's all the things that were to my credit. He says, all those things, they go in the lost column. But now in my credit column, I have Jesus. Jesus gives me his life. He, on the cross, that's what the cross is all about. He makes this amazing exchange of our sin and brokenness. That's why he has to die. He takes the punishment for our sin, the separation from God and the death. It goes on Jesus and he in that moment gives us his goodness and his righteousness credited to our call and that is sufficient and I can operate out of that goodness for the rest of my life. And as I rely on him, I'm not relying on myself and I can operate. Then I experience joy because I don't have to maintain this image and I don't have to get it perfect. I just receive his grace and I receive his goodness. And that is a great motivator that can actually bring real and lasting joy in our lives. Joy is found in Jesus. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Knowing Jesus isn't just, oh, I know what happened. You know, I believe in, I I believe the facts that Jesus was crucified, he was died, he rose again. No, it's about knowing him. It's about being known by God and experiencing his abiding presence, his Holy Spirit in our lives, not just intellectual knowledge. And it's about gaining Jesus at the end of verse 8 here. It's it's about receiving what he gives us. And compared, uh, I consider all this other, this big pile of accomplishments is now a pile of garbage. And a very strong word he uses there, 
refuse or pile of, it could be translated dung. It's a pile of that compared to what I got in return. And now I'm found in him. Verse 9, to be found in him. And not only do I have joy in knowing him and gaining him and being found in him, but I found this righteousness that is not mine. Look at verse 9. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So this is faith alone. It can never be earned. Now, all those good things and all the good ways we want to live and ways that really do please the Lord, they flow from that righteousness that Christ has given you. But those good things are not a substitute for our faith. It's on the basis of faith that comes from God. Again, it's not digging deep down within yourself to find that true you. It's, it's given to you from God, and now you use it to operate from that place. It's a, it's, a, it's a gift from God. So how do we how do we know? How do we understand if I have have I done this? Is this Paul's describing his journey? The question now, is that my journey? Here's, my, here's things that I consider accomplishments in my life. Am I willing to put them in the lost column? And the only thing left over there is Jesus, but that Jesus is everything. There's a great little study called Discipleship Explored. It has some, it's a study of, of Philippians, actually, and it's, it's got some great diagnostic questions, so I'm taking these. Uh, I stole these questions from them because they're excellent. So here's the qu- three questions. Diagnostic in this for you. First question, when you disobey God, and we all have those moments, you know when they are, you disobey God, do you feel less of a Christian than before? Second question, when someone asks you if you are a Christian, do you ever say, yes, but not a very good one? I've I've definitely heard that one. Oh, I'm a Christian, I'm just not a good Christian. Okay, so somebody asks you that, some version of that question. Yes, but not a good one. Third question. On a week when you've, when you've nailed it, on a week when you've read your Bible every day, you came to church in a snowstorm, and you told someone else about Jesus, do you feel more acceptable to God on that week? And if you answer yes to any of those questions, then perhaps you are finding righteousness somewhere other than in Jesus. Because if you realize your righteousness is in Jesus, then when you disobey, you don't feel less righteous in Jesus because his righteousness is complete. When somebody asks you if you're a Christian, how can you say, I'm not a very good Christian, when your Christian faith is based on Christ's righteousness, which is perfect and complete? You know, in a week when you've done a lot of wonderful things and, and been in the Word and, and been to church and have, have done good things, that if, you're, if your acceptance is based on what Christ has already accomplished, you realize that those things are good and help nurture your faith, but they don't make you more acceptable to God because Christ is your righteousness. So the question is, have you made that exchange? All the things that were to my credit, I now count them nothing. This big pile of wonderful things that I accomplished in my life is a big pile of 
garbage. Now, for the sake of knowing Christ and being found in him and having a righteousness that I didn't have to strive for, and to be able to operate from that place of being so loved and accepted, that joy will then grow and flow. And now I come back to that very first question. What makes you acceptable to God? What makes you, what, what possible entrance into heaven or entrance into his kingdom do you claim? The only answer of the thing that can make you acceptable to God, it's Jesus and what he accomplished, not what you accomplished. May we be people who receive that and live from that place. And may we live lives of joy. Amen.